I need no introduction. <laughs> Mrs. Malkin, Dean Wedgworth, ladies and gentlemen. According to the Chinese lunar calendar, we are now coming to the end of the year of the goat. Hold that thought, please. For me, however, 1991 has been the year of the crystal ball. In February of this year, I gave a lecture entitled Reflections by the Captain of the Iceberg to the Colophon Club of San Francisco, in which I made various prognostications regarding events in the rare book world during the next 10 years. This lecture will be published in a few months by the Bibliographical Society of London as the coda to a volume of essays celebrating the centenary of the society. Then in March of this year, at a conference in Iowa organized by Timothy Barrett to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the introduction of papermaking into the United States, I gave a talk which I was asked to repeat in September at the Madison, Wisconsin, Wither the Book Conference organized by Barbara Tietenbaum. My title there was The Future of the Book, If Any. This talk will appear in print either in the proceedings of the Wisconsin Conference or if these proceedings are not published separately, then most likely in W. Thomas Taylor's new journal, Bookways. Last month, I gave a Haynes lecture at the University of North Carolina on education for books as physical objects, and I read a revised version of this paper in which I had a fair amount to say about the future of rare book librarianship a week later at the Houghton Library at Harvard. This lecture will eventually be published by North Carolina. I was honored to have been invited to deliver the 1991 Haynes Lecture. I have fewer reasons for pride on being invited to deliver this, the 1991 Malkin Lecture, given the composition of the selection committee. <laughs> but speaking of the Malkin Lecture, I wish to point out that in the room with us tonight are Marjorie G. Wynn, Roger E. Stoddard, Lucian Goldschmidt, and G. Thomas Tansel. The Malkin Lectures for 1987, 1988, 1989, and 1990, respectively. Welcome back to room 506, all of you, and all of you so carefree tonight. If I have no reason for self-congratulation on being invited to speak to you tonight, nevertheless, I am pleased to have the opportunity to round off my collection of 1991 Future Speaks with a meditation on the future of rare book libraries. In a somewhat more formal version, this lecture will be published next year by our very own Book Arts Press of the University of Virginia. As usual, elegantly printed by the Steinhauer Press. Speaking of which, Stephen Steinhauer, the president of the Steinhauer Press, is also here tonight. It's a pleasure to welcome him to room 506-2. We'll now take a short pause for seating. There are fewer, better ways of making a fool of yourself than by trying to predict the future. In 1965, the political scientist Karl Deutsch was asked to speculate about life in the year 2000, then 35 years away. His assignment, he said, was like being asked to talk about the year 1800 from the vantage point of the year 1765. 
predict the coming of steam power and the effects of industrialization, the revolutions in France and America, and the rise of mass armies. Or to talk about the year 1900 from the vantage point of the year 1865, predict the use of electricity as a source of energy and the development of the internal combustion engine, the rise of labor unions, and the high-water mark of imperialism and colonialism. But if predicting the future is a foolhardy undertaking, it is not always an impossible one. And the exercise is a potentially useful and possibly essential mechanism for dealing with areas of concern in which rapid change is occurring. I am convinced that rare book libraries, both in the United States and worldwide, are in fact at the beginning of a succession of cataclysmic transformations. The most important of these changes will be caused by the increasing disinclination of most research libraries over the next several decades to continue to maintain large permanent collections of paper-based books of any sort, rare or non-rare. This is not to predict that research libraries are going to go entirely out of the codex book business, but rather to say that they will increasingly look upon their current book stock as a convenience collection to be used and eventually disposed of without remorse. Much of the paper-based information we use at present is already generated from electronic originals owned by publishers and by them constantly updated, corrected, expanded, improved, and regularly republished in paper-based form for the use of purchasers in a handy codex format. In the future, readers are increasingly going to have direct online access to electronic text and data files containing the materials they require. And increasingly, they will perceive that they do not ever need and do not ever want access in printed form to the bulk of this material, a circumstance already routinely the case with users of large online databases. The big change is yet to come because most journals and monographs are not yet available to their end users in machine-readable form. But soon enough they will be, and then there go the stacks. I do not mean to suggest that our descendants are going to be doing most of their readings, most of their reading off of CRT screens. It is already very easy to make a convenient printed hard paper copy from text accessible in machine-readable form and it is becoming easier and cheaper to do so all the time. But the more likely the master text is machine-based rather than paper-based, the more likely that paper copies are going to be seen and viewed as the temporary physical manifestations of a permanent electronic ideal. We're already used to this idea. When we buy a paperback copy of, say, a Hawthorne novel in an airport bookshop to read on a long plane ride in case we don't like the movie, it's unlikely that we're ever going to form much of an emotional relationship with the particular copy of the paperback we've just bought. We may well have another and better printed or better edited copy at home or in the institutional library we generally use. The paperback we just bought at the airport serves an immediate purpose and, if it is brought home at all, is consigned to a back bedroom or a weekend house or donated to the public library's annual sale, or eventually just tossed out, an object which had a purpose which it is now fully fulfilled. In no sense is the text of the Hawthorne novel endangered by our carelessness with the particular airport bookshop copy at hand. Expand this example to include more and more of the books published today, not only reference books, but standard texts of all sort and all ages. 
The scholarly press is full of news of massive projects to put into machine-readable form, vast quantities of material ranging from the collected works of every poet mentioned in the New Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature to the entire corpus of the literature of Latin and Greek antiquity. Paper-based printed texts, especially as regards the current monographic literature, continue at present to be indispensable. But every year from now on, a little more of that literature will be available online. And every year, more and more of us will be using it in that form. It seems inevitable that soon enough, the texts of practically everything that anybody is interested in, new or old, poetry or prose, popular or arcane, English or Sanskrit, is going to be available online. The more so because of the simplicity of the technology involved. The equipment necessary to convert a printed paper-based text into machine-readable form is already relatively inexpensive and the requisite technology is becoming constantly cheaper and ever more ubiquitous. Author, subject, genre, period, and other special interest groups are forming everywhere, online, of course. And it seems entirely likely that, for example, every major edition of every work, of every author, of every age, in whom there is any general or academic interest, will be available in machine-readable form before very long. And if you grant this assumption, then I think that you must also then agree that the university library, already changing quickly at the moment, is going to change much more quickly in the near future. Indeed, university libraries are already under every kind of pressure to convert their paper-based holdings into machine-readable form. Over the long, or possibly even the medium haul, they cannot afford the cost of maintaining ever-growing collections of objects which require separate cataloging and physical preparation, separate housing, separate housekeeping and preservation procedures, and separate access conventions. These changes in general research libraries will have an enormous impact on the future of rare book libraries. Until not so long ago, a library's rare books have differed from the library's other books simply in degree. Rare books are more valuable or more Rare books are more valuable or more fragile or more scarce or more brittle or more something than regular books, but still measured along the same scale. General libraries have always been interested in the contents of books, whereas, you may say, rare book libraries are more especially concerned with the container in which those contents are to be found. But they're all books, the same elements at both ends of the spectrum. What is going to happen to rare book libraries when the general research libraries to which they are connected begin to lose interest in storing large numbers of paper-based books, new or not so new, in their stacks? General libraries have, in fact, been preparing themselves for moving out of the codex book storage business for many decades, as one substitute mechanism after another has emerged and become cheap enough for widespread use. The increasingly pervasive availability of texts reformatted in electronic form will tip the balance. As the use of information derived from machine-readable sources accelerates in general research libraries, a gulf will widen between them and their rare book departments, since almost by definition, the contents of rare book libraries do not consist of substitutes, but of the real McCoy, books valuable as objects because of their age, the circumstances of their manufacture, their associations with former owners, their annotations or other interesting signs of use, the non-reproducible quality of their design or their illustrations or their bindings, valuable as objects, 
valuable as something that you can pick up and hold in your hands. General libraries are beginning to see rare book libraries as something increasingly different from themselves. To think of rare book libraries rather as museums, whose patrons tend more to look at books than actually read them. And while the place of museums in our culture in general is a well-established one, their place on academic campuses and within general research libraries is not so well established. Many educational institutions are going to become increasingly dubious about the appropriateness of maintaining museums of the book on their campuses. Indeed, I think that many thoughtful general research library administrators are already uneasy about the resources required for the adequate care and feeding of their rare book departments, and that they wonder whether the activities of such departments still fit under the umbrella of the services appropriately provided by the libraries for which they are responsible. In any event, and whether or not library administrators are now interested in this matter, it is certain that soon enough senior university administrators are going to be fascinated by it, and for a simple, compelling reason. You will have heard, universities are short of money these days, seemingly worse than ever. The reasons for the shortage are many and various. They are as close as this morning's newspaper. State and local governments, themselves strapped for money, have less to give the universities they support. In the private sector, expenses are continuing to rise faster than income, despite relentlessly steady tuition hikes. In university libraries, both public and private, the situation is grim at the moment and getting steadily worse. Research libraries continue to need to furnish services over a constantly widening range while being provided, at least relatively speaking, with constantly decreasing resources with which to do so. Over the past two decades, for instance, libraries have had to open up enormous wedges in their budgets to pay for automation. Very few institutions enlarged their library share of the total budget in order to pay for these increased costs. Similarly, libraries are providing various sorts of online services unheard of 20 years ago. They have been relatively unsuccessful in finding new sources of money with which to pay for these services, and the result is poverty all around. This problem is not a new one. Academic and research libraries have been grimly aware for a long time of their inability to keep up with the increase of human knowledge. They have aggressively enlarged, excuse me, they have aggressively engaged in networking and resource sharing activities designed to help them cope with increased responsibilities coupled with decreased funding. But the resources available to them have by now shrunk to a point where rare book departments within larger general research libraries are having to shoulder a much greater share of the burden than has up to now generally been true. This has not until very recently been generally so. Throughout the 70s and most of the 80s, rare book units in this country have more often than not tended to be protected from overall library budget and staff cuts. Library directors have given their rare book operations most favored, natus, most favored nation status, perhaps in part because rare books are attractive for enhancing the library's public relations base on campus. Moreover, directors tend to like the parties, the, the festivities, and the other excitements that rare book departments can generate. An exhibition opening is easier to celebrate than the acquisition of a new circulation system or the implementation of changes in an online catalog. Budget cuts in university libraries have now been so severe for so long, however, that rare book departments, too, are feeling the pain. 
I want to quote to you from a letter I received a couple of weeks ago from a former student of mine who was curator of rare books on the flagship campus of an institution generally thought to be one of the better American Western state universities. You may, he write, have heard some of the fiscal horrors that are being visited upon us by the governor and the state legislators. The library is particularly hard hit, and this has encouraged our director to wield his battle axe, particularly because the position of head of special collections is vacant, and thus there is no one around to object to what he is doing. What he is doing is dismantling special collections. He has already uprooted the Russian Studies collection. The curator will probably be turned into a regular services librarian. My job is to go. He has told me not to count on my job to continue after 1992. Rare books will be dumped on our state historical collection, the literary manuscripts on the university archives. These are both departments for which there is a mandate to maintain them. Otherwise, he might well be tempted to close archives as well. The position of head of special collections will be eliminated. None of this is to save money. That is only the ostensible reason. This is all politics. The director working desperately to save himself and his position since he has had a great deal of public criticism for some bad decisions. In the short term, it may possibly do him some good. In the long run, it will ruin this university's claim to be a research institution. The VIPs at this institution who make the decisions are all hardcore scientists. They care very little about the humanities and are perfectly willing to sell all the rare books to the first dealer who shows up on the doorstep. Note that my former student attributes the decline of his rare book department not so much to lack of money as to changing priorities within his institution. A shrewd characterization. It's not simply that university libraries cannot afford to run rare book operations anymore. Rather, it's increasingly that they don't want to. In this attitude, they are joined by an ever-increasing number of metropolitan public libraries. This month's American Libraries, for example, reports that portions of the rare book collection at the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library will go up for auction next year. The library director's comment, this approach will result in the materials being placed in collections where they will be appropriately preserved and any research value fully realized, while yielding a potentially significant exchange on these assets for the library's endowment fund. We must remember that for most readers, the change from paper-based information sources to electronically-based information sources will be a great improvement over the present situation. Information will be cheaper and more widely and easily available to them in more places. Once acquired, it will be easier to manipulate, to copy, extract, index, translate, store, and retrieve. We must not let whatever personal affection we have for books as physical objects blind us to the fact that most persons are, when push come to shove, quite free of emotional relationships with the physical containers by which their information needs are met. The end of the book as physical object in libraries, academic and public, is not quite yet in sight. At least in the foreseeable future, it is unlikely that all machine-readable texts will invariably work better than any paper-based ones. Printed books are going to continue to be produced for a good long time to come, especially those with complicated formats. Top-of-the-line firms like the Steinhauer Press, which, which specialize in illustrated books, will prosper. Still, slowly but surely, we are beginning to view codex books in two quite different ways. On the one hand, 
as convenient and disposable printouts, and on the other hand, as art or museum objects. Libraries are susceptible to fashion. What one library does, another library will imitate. In general, research libraries are a lot more like each other than they are different from each other. Just as soon as the technology allows, or perhaps a bit sooner, trend-setting research libraries are going to go out of the permanent paper storage business, and the great majority of other libraries will follow them lickety-split. Most research libraries will not want to maintain much more than convenience collections of paper-based materials, and they will begin the substantial deaccession of their present book holdings in successive decimations, which will include at least many of their rare books. We are about to enter a period in which we shall see the wholesale destruction of most institutionally-based rare book collections. Not everything will go. An institution is likely to retain in their original physical formats materials which are part of its own history. Books notable for their physical beauty or their sentimental appeal will have a good chance of retention. Books which are particularly good examples of their physical genres or formats will routinely be retained. Books in original bindings and in fresh condition, for example. A local connection or relevance will become more and more important as a measure by which to determine the retention or discarding of a paper-based book. The focus of special collections will more and more follow regional lines. <coughs> Professionally trained rare book librarians are themselves going to have a major role to play in the downsizing of their collections, for they are the persons best trained to make the decisions on what books should be retained in their original formats and what books should be deaccessioned. In the more or less immediate future, that is to say during the next decade, rare book librarians will be asked to contract their online excuse me, will be asked to contract their on-campus book stack space. They will thus need to establish classes of books which can be sent to remote storage. Over the longer haul, they will have to set up criteria for separating their rare book sheep from their rare book goats, permanently deaccessioning a great many sheep, retaining a modest number of locally relevant goats. 1991 is the year of the goat. Many of these deaccession decisions cannot intelligently be made by a single institution in ignorance of what other institutions are doing along the same line. If we don't work together, then we'll all tend to save the same classes of materials, and we'll all tend to throw out the same classes of materials. Few copies of the Shakespeare First Folio are going to be sent off to sanitary landfill. But practically all copies of practically every non-illustrated periodical are at risk. As is the great rock of just plain, non-splendid, unillustrated, printed books from virtually all places and periods, especially if they are in poor condition. Physical bibliographers are well aware that the story a book has to tell neither begins nor ends with its text. At this podium on a similar occasion, exactly a year ago, Tom Tansel eloquently set forth the ways in which a book and a work, the container and its contents, are different. In his 1990 Malkin lecture, he described the current national enthusiasm for what is called preservation microfilming. And he argued that the original should be retained even after they have been filmed. Microfilming as a preservation mechanism has great limitations. 
We can, with absolute confidence, expect that our ability to reformat library materials will continue to improve. The list of reformatting devices employed by libraries during the past century is a long one. Photography, the photostat, microfilm, cheap offset lithography, xerography, video disk technology, the electronic digitization of text and now of images. Microfilming, after all, is simply one of the chronological steps along the long preservation way. Later generations of students will always need access to the originals in order to derive new levels of information from them as the feasibly available technology improves. It is the responsible of rare book librarians to see that suitable copies do survive. Rare book librarians must take the responsibility for devising regional, national, and international plans for ensuring the survival of representative examples of the widest possible range of materials retained in their original physical format. They will not be able to save much of anything in its original format, but they must find ways to save something of everything. <coughs> Rare book librarians can and must do more than this. They must embrace a new role as curators of museum objects and expand that role. There isn't room for many museums of the book as such either in this country or worldwide. There is, however, far more room for museums of the history of communication. We need to work towards the creation of institutions concerned with the history of the communication of ideas, whether through books printed in manuscript or through graphic images or through film and video or through digitized images and sounds. In short, we need to take as our province and responsibility the history of words and, and especially, the history of all the physical entities which now serve or which have served to transmit those words. This mission overlaps that of art museums, but only to a limited extent. By and large, art museums are not generally concerned with the history of words as such. There is an overlap between book museums and art museums in the area of visual images, but the redundancy is one that we're already used to and know how to deal with. You are as likely to find a copy of an old engraving or other print in a large research library as in a large art museum, and the chances indeed are that the library will have cataloged the print better and thus make it more accessible than, than the museum has, especially if the print came originally from a book. By no means all universities are going to get out of the rare book business, even if, if I am correct, most institutions now possessing rare book collections are going to downsize them, and many more are indeed going to leave the field altogether. Rare book librarians are going to have to cope with the fact that their institutional bases and funding sources are quite likely to shift and they are going to have to be increasingly adroit at finding new homes for their collections and new justifications for their retention in their original physical formats. Institutions change or adapt or they fail. I remind you that the idea of college and university collapse is not a new one in this country. And G. Edward Evans has suggested that at least as many colleges and universities in this country have failed as have survived over the past three centuries. Remember, please, that our society has historically tended to be quite unsentimental in its insistence that one generation make way for another. Perhaps this is nowhere more clear than in New York City, where the life expectancy of physical structures tend to be very limited indeed. Vast numbers of old books have thus far been acquired by and housed in our nation's libraries first 
because the best way to get access to the contents of those books was by owning actual copies. And second, because the cost of maintaining those books in their original formats was thought to be bearable. But now there is another way, and we must deal with the changes that the new way will create. You may be thinking that these changes are too drastic to occur so quickly. But remember what happened to wood engravers between about 1870 and about 1890, a 20-year period during which the photographically generated photo engraving virtually wiped them out as a profession. Remember that in 1900, almost nobody had access to an automobile in this country. Less than a generation later, almost everybody did. Change can happen quickly. And we must guard against the belief that things will change, but not too much and not too fast. My colleague on the School of Libraries Service faculty, Jessica Gordon, likes to point out that one of the chief difficulties in predicting the future lies not so much in getting the facts right as in predicting an accurate timeline. In the 1960s, for example, she notes that it was predicted that computers would put people out of work. Remember desk set. That computers would put people out of work, something that did not happen to any particular extent in the 60s or even in the 70s, though we were getting used to the notion. In the 1980s, the perpetually receding target stopped moving. And computers did begin to put people out of work. By then, however, the idea was a commonplace one, and it was accepted without much social unrest, as a matter of fact. Today, I've predicted a future in which a new world of electronically generated information will supersede our present world of print-based information. But I may very well have my timelines wrong. These changes may not happen as soon or as much over the next 30 years or so as I think they're going to. Oh, Lord, you two may be thinking to yourselves, make me wholly machine-readable, but not yet. <laughs> but as you pray, please bear in mind the possibility that though my timelines may be wrong, my conclusions are probably not. Sooner or later, the physical book as we know it is going to go the way of the horse. Thank you very much. Now, don't stir. Uh, there are a couple of things. First, uh, a comment by Robert Wedgworth, the Dean of the School of Library Service. Thank you, Terry. And I'll come back to you in a moment. <laughs> this seventh Saul M. Malkin lecture will be the final such lecture presented under the auspices of the School of Library Service here at Columbia University. And I wanted to be sure to take advantage of this opportunity to publicly thank Marianne Malkin for her generous support of this lecture series and her support of our rare books program in general. But most of all, Marianne, I want to thank you for your active encouragement of all of our programs over the years here at the School of Library Service. Thank you. 
and a brief word about a man who needs no introduction. <laughs> I knew Terry Ballinger by reputation and only slightly on a personal basis before I came to Columbia in 1985. The closest encounter we had had was a rather nasty letter he had sent to me having nothing to do with my responsibilities as executive director of the American Library Association, but one of my lapses in uh, a major work that I edited annually uh, uh, on which he was absolutely correct, as he is in most instances. So I arrived on Morningside Heights somewhat apprehensive. <laughs> I must say that that apprehension very quickly turned to acclamation for what he and my colleagues were uh, trying to accomplish here. And I want to say to Terry this evening, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for the standards that you bring and brought to our program, and thank you most of all for all of the work that you have made to uh, support the Rebooks program here at the School of Library Service and to distinguish it not only here but all over the world. In doing that, I'm also thanking the friends of the Book Arts Press, all of the previous lecturers uh, in this program in the past, and I hope that you understand that we do have a great debt to you in making this program what it has been. Finally, I would like to say, for your information, that we have recently signed an agreement with the Graduate School and University Center of the City University to move the School of Library Service to the City University of New York, effective in 1992-93. There are some major contingencies to this, those of you who are familiar with the academic world these days understand that these are perilous times for all of our institutions of higher education. You know, of course, as Terry mentioned earlier, the Rare Books program will be moving to the University of Virginia, and also that our conservation education programs will be moving to the University of Texas at Austin as of 1992-93. Thank all of you for being with us this evening. Thank you for all of your support for our programs, and we know that you will live to see these programs continue in some form or another in the future. Thank you. The South will rise again. The 1992 Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography will be given in December 1992 in the Dome Room of the Rotunda at the University of Virginia by Professor Robert Darnton of Princeton University. Now, it has been our custom at Malkin Lectures to make copies of last year's Malkin Lecture, usually just published, available. But last year's Malkin Lecture by Tom Tansel has been out for nearly six months, and all of the friends and many of the rest of you have copies already. Hence, I propose a different system this year. May I have a copy of the, the chit? <laughs> this is a Malkin. <laughs> uh, as you leave the room, you will be given one, and you may exchange it at your convenience in the door to 522 that leads to the hallway uh, outside the uh, reception room, 
for a copy of any of the six Malkin lectures thus far published. 1985, Winship, 86, Rosenthal, 87, Wynn, 88, Stoddard, 89, Goldschmidt, 90, Tansel. Did it. <laughs> uh, since I have some reason to encourage the reduction of stock, <laughs> you may also, on this occasion, buy a copy of any of the other Malkin lectures at half price, which is to say $2.50 for Winship and $5 apiece for any of the others. There will never be a better Malkin autographing opportunity <laughs> than tonight, since there are five Malkin lectures in the room to say nothing of the Malkin. <laughs> I hope you'll all join us for uh, a drink and other refreshments in room 523. Thank you for coming. <laughs>